So today, this is the final sermon in my series, Liberty in Jesus, as we've gone through the book of Galatians. There's actually one chapter left, and we will deal with that in January under a different series and a different uh, tilt and theme. But today, we're going to finish up in Galatians chapter 5. So if you will, go ahead and begin turn your Bibles, Galatians 5, verse 16, and we're going to read verses 16 through 26. Um, starting next week, Brother Chase is going to preach. So y'all come out and support him. He always does a phenomenal job bringing the Word of God. And then the following week, I'm going to begin a short three-part series about Christmas, the Christmas story. It'll start on December the 18th, Sunday morning, and then it'll follow into the candlelight service where I'll share as well. And then the next week on Christmas Day, we'll finalize that series. So I hope you'll be in prayer about that and what God will do through, the, through his Word and the preaching of his Word. Amen. All right, so I just want to give us a, a brief uh, intro into our sermon and share a little story with you. A lot of people who love history, they always kind of go back to World War II. World War II was one of those uh, world-changing events, if you will, and really it's still considered recent history as it only happened probably 70, 80 years ago. But as we think back to World War II, we understand that the Nazis were trying to take over the world, essentially, and they were uh, destroying entire nations, and then the Allied forces stepped in and began to push back on them and, thank God, eventually won that war. But there was a lot of strategy. There was a lot of battles that happened during that war. There was a lot of those unknown stories that come out many years later of uh, bravery and sometimes the, the horror of what war brings. Well, one story was this, that the, the Nazis, they had contrived a plan. And what their strategy was, was their strategy was to take the uniforms of captured American soldiers and they would wear these uniforms. And these were English-speaking Germans. And they would put on these American uniforms and they would uh, penetrate and infiltrate the Allied military bases. And their whole goal was to get into these Allied military bases and wreak havoc, um, cause confusion. Many of them did achieve that task. They would get behind the lines, dressed up as American soldiers. They would go, they would change the, the directional signs on the military bases where people were going the wrong way. They would direct entire tank groups to the wrong direction, to the wrong places. Um, they, would, they would cause all kinds of havoc to the point where the Americans finally started to realize that this was going on and began to fight back and they would put checkpoints at all the entrances to the bases and what they would do is, is the, the American soldiers would quiz those who, try, who tried to come into the base. And they would say, okay, so, so what about this sports team? What about this in pop culture? What about this music? And it would be American-based stuff because they wanted to see, okay, do these people really know what we know? And are they truly Americans? Well, what ended up happening was that some of the Americans didn't even know the answers to some of the questions. So they ended up putting them on lockdown which was continually achieving the purpose that the Nazis had set forth by trying to create havoc and chaos. Well, eventually, though, they, they got rid of all of those who were behind the, the lines and uh, they retreated back, and thank God, the Americans finally won. But the point of that is, is that they were imposters. They were dressed up like Americans. They looked like Americans. They sounded like Americans. They could speak the language of Americans, but they were not Americans. Well, in the same way, Paul here is dealing with these Judaizers. And as you've heard in previous sermons, the Judaizers were this group of people who were coming in to the churches in Galatia. And they would come in and they would say, hey, we're believers just like you are. We've trusted in Jesus. We're Christians. And we want to be a part of your fellowship. But then the longer they were there, the more chaos they began to wreak in the church. 
because not only did they believe that Jesus was the way to heaven, but they also began to teach that you must do uh, this, this, and this in order to be spiritual. Or you must be circumcised and follow the Sabbaths and the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And they began to wreak havoc. So today I want us to think about imposters. But the question that I want us to answer in the title of my sermon is this, who is your master? Who is your master? And that's a really a question that we all have to answer. So if you found your place in the word, if you will stand to your feet as we honor God's word. We're going to read the scripture there beginning in verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, okay? Beginning in verse 16, the Bible says this, I say then, walk by the spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I love you, God, and I'm so thankful for your word. And Lord, as we think about the fact that we possess a copy of your word in our language, we realize how blessed we truly are. As we look across the world, we know there are many people and cultures in different languages who do not have a Bible that they can read. There's not even one that exists in their language. And Lord, I think about people like Al and Susan Bush who gave their lives to translating the scriptures in Papua New Guinea. And today there's an entire people group who have the Bible because of Al and Susan's dedication to your word. So today, God, as we study your word, as it is our foundation in all that we do here at Pole Creek, help us, Lord, to, to, to just take a moment in awe of that. To, to be appreciative, God, and thankful for what you've given us, that we do have this Bible. And Lord, help us not to take it uh, in a way that is disrespectful. Help us, Lord, to be attentive to what you have for us today. And Lord, we know that your words are the words of life. And your words, God, give us peace and strength. And your words, God, are objective truth. And we're thankful for you, Jesus, today. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you're taking notes, the first thing that I want us to see is this. A battle for the ages. So as we're thinking about who our master is, we need to understand that there are really two masters that are fighting. Two masters that are fighting against each other and whose agendas are completely opposed. In verse 16, Paul begins with a command. Did you hear what he said there in verse 16? He says, I say then, walk by the Spirit. He's not asking us to walk by the Spirit. He's commanding us. He was commanding the people in the churches at Galatia. Today, he's commanding us, walk by the Spirit. In other words, allow the Spirit to lead and control you. Now, I want to kind of help you understand this because there is a lot of misconceptions about the Holy Spirit. 
There's a lot of denominations that do not have a biblical view of who the Holy Spirit is. But number one, you need to understand that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is a person. When someone refers to him as it, that's not accurate. He is a he. Uh, he is a person of God, okay? We, we know that God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully God, and he is a whole person. So when we get saved, when the, the Bible teaches us when we trust in Jesus and we accept him based upon his death, burial, and resurrection, that the Holy Spirit indwells us. It's an instantaneous act that the moment we have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit literally lives within us. Now, we have to be careful. If the Holy Spirit is a person, it means that he cannot be divided. It means that you can't just get part of him and then get the rest later. It means that when you have the Holy Spirit, you have him in his entirety. Someone who has been saved for one day has just as much of the Holy Spirit as someone who has been saved for 50 years. You cannot get more of the Spirit. So when people talk about that we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what they're talking about is not we need to have more of him in us because we already have all of him that we can have fully in his person. What they mean by that is that we are yielding more of ourselves to him. What it means is, is if I have certain areas in my life that I have told God to stay away from or I have not allowed God to have his way in those areas, then I am not fully yielding myself to him and therefore I am not being filled with the Spirit. But when I fully yield myself to him, every area of my life, I am his and I am under his leadership and his control, then I am being filled with the Holy Spirit. So the battle is this. We understand that the flesh is fighting against the spirit. Did you hear right there in verse 17, the Bible says this, for the flesh desires what is against the spirit and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. Here as we go on down, we, I wanna define the word flesh as well because there's also misconceptions about that in scripture. There are times in scripture when it talks about flesh, it's talking about your body. It's talking about your hands, your feet, okay, your physical body. But in this sense, it's not. Because I want you to know that your body is not in and of itself evil. Your body is actually neutral. Your body is a gift from God. Your body is not something that's a part of the sin curse, although it is affected by the sin curse. Your body is a gift from God. What it's talking about there when it talks about flesh, it's talking about your fallen sinful nature. Now, we're all born with a sinful nature. As a matter of fact, we're not just born with a sinful nature. We're conceived with a sinful nature. We possess the sinful nature the moment of conception, that we inherit that from our parents who inherited it from their parents and goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And that's what he's talking about there. He's talking about that fallen sin nature that we have inherited from our parents, ultimately Adam and Eve, is at war against the Holy Spirit. So those of us who know Christ who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who have the Holy Spirit living within them, there is a battle raging within us that as we go throughout our life, there are gonna be certain things that we want to do. Did you hear in verse 17? It says, so that you don't do what you want. And what that's saying is, is that as we go through life, there's gonna be a battle that takes place where maybe we're at work, maybe someone's telling a dirty joke, and maybe there's that temptation to laugh and to be a part of that. But the Bible's teaching us that if we walk by the Spirit, we're going to yield ourselves to the Spirit, which means in that moment, if we yield ourselves to the Spirit, He's going to give us the power to walk away, to not engage in that. 
However, if we go the way of the flesh and we go the way of that sinful desire, then what's going to happen there? We're going to fall into that sin and we're going to commit that sin. But if we are walking by the Spirit and we're yielding ourselves to Jesus, then those times where our sinful nature tries to pull us off course, that's when the power of God enables us to abstain from that sin. See, people who don't know Christ, who have never been saved, they, can't, they don't have control over that. That's why we see in this world there's so many people who are indulging in sinful lifestyles. Because what they're doing is, is they're going the way of their sinful desires. They're going the way of their flesh. And they're saying, you know what? I desire that, so therefore it must be good, so I'm going to chase it. And when they do that, they think somehow they're going to receive fulfillment from that. That's why you see people who have multiple sexually immoral relationships before marriage. That's why you see people who cheat on their spouses. That's why you see people who are hooked on drugs. That's why you see people who are hooked on pornography. Because they're going the way of the flesh. And in many cases, I'm not saying Christians can't do some of that because we are not perfect and we do fall from time to time. But many times when you see that, it's because they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them to give them power and victory over the flesh. And we have to understand that. That's what the scripture's saying here. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says this, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit. In John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, the Bible says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Here Jesus is speaking to the disciples before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, and ultimately before his ascension to heaven. And he's saying, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm, there's going to be someone else who's going to come and replace me. Someone else who's going to come alongside of you and love you and guide you through this life. And he says, that is the Spirit. And he says that not only will the Spirit be with you, the Holy Spirit, but he will also be in you. See, we serve a God who not only saves us, but who dwells within us. And listen, there, there's so much comfort in that because what that means is, is that no matter where you go, no matter what you do, God is with you. God is in you. And God is strengthening you and there for you. When the rest of the world turns their backs on you and leaves, hey, if you know Christ, he's with you. The Spirit lives literally within you. The Bible says that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about this battle that's, that's raging on and this, this different idea of, you know, we've got the, the, the flesh and we've got the spirit, we've got the law and we've got grace. Throughout the book of Galatians, as we've gone through this book, we've noticed that there's been several different labels given to each one of these sides of the battle. Okay, so over here on the side of the law, we've got uh, different things like slavery. Okay, the law is, is in connection with slavery. Remember the mention of Ishmael the son of the slave woman, who was Hagar. We remember that the flesh is being used. The covenant of the law is being used. And all of these are being lumped together to stand for man's own righteousness. And our effort and our ability to try to be righteous on our own outside of God. And that's what all of that is lumped in together. But in the book of Galatians, you've got this other side that Paul is advocating for. He's teaching us about freedom. Not the slavery of the law and the slavery of sin, but the freedom of grace. He talks about Isaac, who was the son born to the free woman, who was Sarah. 
He talks about grace. He talks about the covenant of the promise that was given to Abraham. And we all know that the covenant of promise talked about Abraham having descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then he, God says this to Abraham, and through your seed, I will bless the whole world. And right there in that word seed, it's singular because it's talking about a singular person. It's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here on this side, we have Jesus, we have grace, we have salvation, we have freedom, we have Isaac, we have Sarah. Over here, we have slavery, we have sin, we have the law, we have Ishmael, we have Hagar. And Paul is continually throughout this entire book making the case for both of these sides and saying why we should abstain from trying to live in this arena and how we should live in the sphere of grace. I went to a revival several years ago before Hannah and I were married, and it was a tent revival, and the preacher began to preach, and I was sitting there by myself, and I realized very quickly that his preaching was very legalistic, and it had no shred of grace at all, very just mean and judgmental, uh, no grace at all, and I began to feel this gut-wrenching feeling in my stomach. And it, it got to the point so much so that I was like a fish out of water there. And I'm sure anybody who was there could have seen it on my face. I was just so out of place. And I didn't feel comfortable there anymore. I immediately, about five minutes after his preaching, I got up and left. got in my truck and went home. And later on, you know, as I think about that and I think about what happened there, I began to realize that that was the Holy Spirit within me showing me that what was being preached was not of God. Showing me and bearing witness to say, Listen, Ben, we got to go. This, this is not the right place for you, and you don't need to be associating with this or listening to this. Well, that's what we enjoy with the Holy Spirit. We have a God who lives within us to where we are free to live righteously because we are guided by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. He speaks to us. He leads us. In different situations in your life, he's going to guide you and lead you. Whereas if you're going to live under the law, then, then the Spirit is not involved in that. You can't have the Spirit and the law. You can't have uh, legalism and freedom. You can't have both. You either have one or the other. And if I'm going to live under the law, and if I'm going to live according to legalism, then I've got to take out that long, thick law, detailed law, and I've got to make sure that I'm keeping every command within that law. And I've got to make sure that I'm doing everything exactly as I should. And when I mess up on one little thing, the Bible says that I've messed the whole thing up. Now, which one is freedom and which one is slavery? Which one is good for our spirit and which one is bad for our spirit? Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you're going to give all that up. You're going to give up the freedom for the slavery. You're going to give up the grace for the law. He's saying the law was never meant to save you. It was only there to reveal your sinfulness. And if you think that you're going to be righteous by keeping the law, all you're going to do is enslave yourself to that impossible task of always trying to be good enough. In verse 18, we go on down there, and uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 18, the Bible says this, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the what? The law. Wait a minute. So if I'm being led by the Holy Spirit, I can't be under the law. And here in these churches in Galatia, as Paul was trying to teach them, listen, these imposters have come into your church and they have fooled you. They have fooled you into thinking that, yes, you can have grace and you can have the Spirit, but also you've got to live under the law at the same time. And you're going to bring those two together, and that's what's going to make you righteous, and that's what's going to get you to heaven. Paul says, no. 
You can't have it both ways. Either you're trusting Jesus for your salvation or you're trusting yourself. Now you have to choose who's your master going to be. Is your master the spirit or is your master the flesh and your sinful nature? And I think that's a great question that we should all be asking. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, as I know many of you have probably heard of and some have read, John Bunyan authored that book back in the 1500s and he actually authored it in a prison cell. It's probably only second to the Bible in the most copies printed and read. But there's a story within Pilgrim's Progress. There's a man named Interpreter and his house is used as an example or as a symbol. The house was completely covered with dust on the outside and the inside. And when a man would grab a broom and begin to sweep inside the house, the dust would stir up and begin to choke everyone inside. The harder that the man swept the dust, the worse off everyone was and the worse they choked. The dust, or the interpreter, ordered the maid at that point to go get some water. And she brought the water, they applied the water, and it says that the dust went away and it washed the dust away. Here was what the interpreter explained was the symbolism. He said that the house represented the heart of an unsaved man, full of dust, full of sin. The dust was his original sin or his sin nature, which we know is the flesh. And the man with the broom was the law. The harder he swept, the worse it got. And the maid with the water was the gospel. So here what we have is, is we have the law. And what the law does is, is it stirs up within us rebellion. Because now we're being presented with what is right and what is wrong. The law is showing us the holiness of God. So because of our sin nature, we want to rebel against that. So the more that we try to apply the law, the more sinful we get. The more sin stirs up within us, the more awful it becomes. And we realize that all the law does is it just shows you the, the nastiness of the sin, but it never cleans the house. It never cleans the heart. What cleans the heart is the gospel that Jesus, his blood was shed on the cross and he died in your place and that the wrath of God was poured out on his son so that he absorbed the wrath that we all should have taken. And by him absorbing our wrath upon his own body upon the cross, the Bible says that we are justified, that we are made righteous because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And then Jesus' resurrection points to even further the fact that sin and death and the grave can't keep hold on our God. So even more so, when you think about it like that, why in the world would I want to try to take a broom and clean up my life? Because all I'm going to do is choke everybody. I'm going to choke myself. How much more so do I want to let the king of glory, the perfect God of eternity past and eternity future, how about I let him clean me up? And I promise you, he's going to do a good job. And that's what Paul is speaking of here. So we see this battle that's raging between the flesh and the spirit. So I want to spend just a brief moment talking about the flesh and talking about the spirit. So if you're taking notes, write this down, the flesh. And we're going to read more about the flesh in verses 19 through 21. Verses 19 through 21. I think that's, that's wrong there. So 19 through 21, though, is correct, okay? So beginning in verse 19 of Galatians 5, the Bible says this. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, 
carousing, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's very powerful words there and very direct and very objective words. Not a whole lot of guessing left to be done there, right? Here Paul elaborates on what would be considered the deeds of the flesh or the things that someone does whose master is the flesh. Remember that the flesh is referring to our sinful nature and our sinful passions. So here he's talking about someone who goes the way of the flesh. Someone who listens to their sinful passions and desires and indulges in those when they come before them. And really, grace is opposed to lists. You know, a lot of times we look at grace and we understand that we are led by the Spirit. We don't need a, a letter of the law in order to guide us because the Spirit speaks to us. However, there are still great guidelines and commands in the New Testament that we should be following and should we, we should be going with. Well, here Paul yields to that desire for humanity to want to see a, a list or a description. What does it look like if I'm yielding myself to my sinful passions and my sinful nature? Well, here he gives us a long list of different actions that that happens. And I don't need to read those again, but as you look at those different sinful deeds, beginning in verse 19, my question is, can you find a common ground? Is there something underlying with all those deeds that's in common? How would you describe all those deeds, perhaps, in just one sentence, without using the names of those deeds? Well, when you think about it, you realize very quickly that all of those sinful deeds elevate self. They put us on the throne. They take God off. In other words, when we go the way of our sinful passions and our sinful lusts, what we're doing is we're saying, God, you need to get out of the way. I'm going to sit on my own throne and I'm going to call my own shots. Murder. Murder is wrong. Why? Because it's a human being deciding who should live and who should die. Adultery. It's wrong. Why? Because it's a human being decided, deciding that a marriage should end before death do us part. Why is uh, lying wrong? Because it's a human being trying to redefine the truth. It's any time that a human being decides to usurp the authority of God and take on their own crown and their own throne that we begin to see they go down that path of the flesh and they go down that path of sinful lusts and sinful nature. That is the common ground. Maybe you've heard here recently of a news article where a 10-year-old boy shot his mother, murdered his mother. And the actual article says, 10-year-old boy kills his mother because of Amazon purchase. And what happened was the boy had gone to his mother and asked her for a headset for his video game. She told him no. Well, the next day, they found her dead with a, a gunshot wound in her head. And as they began to investigate, the boy initially just said, you know, the gun accidentally went off and it killed my mom. But as they talked to the older sister, they began to find out that that 10-year-old boy had a history of violence, that even as a four-year-old boy, he would abuse animals. And as he, as he got older and older, his anger and his outbursts grew, even to the point where he, he made an explosive device and set it off in his living room with flammable liquids. And now to the point here where he kills his mother because she wouldn't buy him what he wanted on Amazon. And they found that the day that he killed his mother on the Amazon order list under his mom's account, he had actually ordered the headset either right before he killed his mom or right after. And you think about how in the world could someone come to that place, especially a 10-year-old boy. How can that happen? My friends, it's because he went the way of the flesh. You say, you know, he's an innocent child. No, he's not. Hey, the Bible says, for all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God. Hey, you don't have to teach a youngin in this house to lie, to say no, to be mean, not to share. It's the sinful nature. And when we see radical examples like that, we begin to see how real and the reality of that sinful nature. And what it all encompasses is this. He wanted something. Someone told him no. He eliminated the obstacle so he could fulfill his desire to have what he wanted. You go back to the Garden of Eden, guess what Adam and Eve did? They were walking by that tree, the tree, the only tree. Now, they could have eaten of every other tree they wanted to. There was no shortage of fruit trees in the garden, okay? Don't let anybody fool you with that. They had all the food they could have ever wanted, but it was the one tree that God said not to touch, not to eat of. And that's the one tree that they were enticed by. And the Bible says that the serpent told Eve, listen, God said you were going to die when you eat this. That's a lie. As a matter of fact, when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened, you will know right from wrong, and you will be like God. Now, the moment that Adam and Eve heard those words, it says that the Bible said they, they loved the tree, that it was, looked good to them. And it looked good to them because as Satan was feeding them this lie, it was fulfilling their desires and their lusts. And it was drawing them in. And because they wanted to be God, they wanted to sit on their own throne, they ate the apple. And we know that that is the original sin. And that is the sin that we've all inherited today. And that is the sin that is reflected in every other sin that a person can commit. No matter what sin you can come up with, it all originates from, I want to put myself on God's throne. No matter what sin it is, you can trace it back to that one sin. It is me misplacing or displacing God for my own righteousness, my own understanding, and my own wisdom. So as we think about that, we see those deeds. In verse, uh, in verse 19, we go on down there just a little bit. If you'll look there in verse 19, it talks about the works of the flesh. And then we see that our flesh is the master when we elevate ourselves above God. So that is that sinful desire that resides within us but I wanted to end on a good note because I know that's some heavy stuff, right? The spirit. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Let's talk about the spirit for just a minute. And we see the spirit being spoken of and going a little bit deeper there in verse 22. So we have this list of the bad deeds, the list of deeds that reflect someone living according to the flesh. And then God gives us this list of the fruit of the spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So here Paul elaborates, but I want to point you to this, that when you see the fruit of the Spirit, the word fruit in verse 22 is not plural, it's singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. Why is that? It's because Paul is showing us that when you are indwelled by the Spirit and you're walking with the Spirit, that you're not just going to exemplify one of these traits, but because of the overflow of the Spirit in your life and because of his character, you will in one way or another exemplify every single one of these traits. The believer who is indwelled by God will be kind. They will be good. 
They will be faithful. They will be gentle. They will be self-controlled. They will be loving and they will be joyous. All of those will be exemplified in your life. And you notice there's a commonality between all of those attributes of the fruit of the Spirit. In the same way, there's a commonality between the deeds of those who live by the flesh. And it's that all of the fruit of the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit are others focused. The deeds of the flesh, self focused. Me, let me elevate myself. Fruit of the Spirit, let me love God and love others. That's what it's all about. Did you hear right there? Love, joy, peace, patience, being patient with people, being kind to people, being good to people, being faithful in what you do, being gentle to others, being self-controlled, not acting a fool and just trying to show out all the time, but being self-controlled for the good of others. Hey, that's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Not only are you to be saved by the Spirit, not only are you to be washed in the blood of Jesus, but the Bible teaches us that we are to walk in the Spirit, which means every day when you wake up, that your prayer needs to be, Lord, as I go throughout my day, give me the strength to say no to the desires of the flesh and to say yes to the leading of the Holy Ghost. And God, I trust you to give me the power to do that. I trust you, God. Help me to be sensitive to your leading and to your moving in my life. Help me not to be uh, ignorant of what you've called me to do, but make it clear, God, and I will follow. That needs to be the prayer of the saints today. In verse 24, when we go on down, it says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does that mean? Well, that means that we must die in order to live. Now think about that for a minute. We must die in order to live. If we went through this verse several weeks back, but Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20 say this, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we think about that, we must die to live. We must allow our sinful passions, our desires, our flesh to be crucified, to be killed. And only when we die can we then live unto Christ. Only when we die to what we want can we then live in the freedom that comes with being led by the Holy Spirit. And then I want to leave you with this. As a church, we are called to hold each other accountable. That's one of the beautiful things about church life. A lot of people say, well, you know, and I've said this before, but you know, Ben, I can worship God in the tree stand. I can worship God on the lake. I can worship God at the football game. Sure you can. Yeah, you can. You're right. I'm not going to deny that. But will those guys at the football game hold you accountable when you start running off at the mouth? Hey, will, will that big old buck out there holler at you when you start... Um, veering off the path of, of righteousness? No. Hey, you need to be around godly people who will come around you, who love you enough to tell you, you know, Ben, something's bothering me about what you're doing. And I love you and I care about you and, and we need to talk about it because I think, I think maybe you need to get right with God. And here's the thing. The reason that Paul brings this up in verse 26, he's saying, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, is he's addressing this situation I'm talking about. He's addressing church discipline. He's saying, listen, as these Judaizers are here, and even as these Galatians are sometimes believing the lies of the Judaizers to mix law and grace, don't approach them out of arrogance. Don't approach them being conceited. Don't walk up to someone and, and, and try to correct their lifestyle by, by making it act like you've got it all together. By making it like, you know what, I would never do something like that. I cannot believe you and, and shame someone and, and just belittle someone because they've messed up. 
The Bible here is teaching us to love one another. If you love someone, you're going to walk up to them in love. You don't want to shame them. You don't want to hurt them. But you want them to hear the truth enough to say, listen, I love you so much that the way you're living and you going with the flesh is going to destroy you. It's going to enslave you. And I care about you too much to let you live like that. And as your brother, as your sister in love, I'm coming to you asking you, would you please get right with God? And hey, that's what we're called to do. That's why you can't replace what we're doing right now. You can't replace being integrated and involved in a local Bible-believing church. The church was instituted in the book of Acts for this reason, to glorify God, to serve together, and to hold each other accountable. And I promise you, I'm better because I'm a part of Pole Creek. I'm a better person because I'm a part of Pole Creek. I'm a better person because there are several of you in here who would not hesitate to correct me if I stepped out of line. And I want to say thank you for that. And listen, if you're serious about serving the Lord, if you're serious about walking with the Spirit, you need to be involved in church. You, and this doesn't need to be just a part of your life. And I gotta, I gotta stop, I'm about to get on another sermon. But that doesn't mean that church is just a part of your life. It means that church is a huge, huge deal in your life. Hey, have you ever heard of scheduling stuff around church? Man, you know, we got church on Sunday. Let, let's shoot for Saturday, you know? And that's a dying art, you know? We need, church needs to be so important in our lives because God has ordained it and instituted it and he has asked us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. It is so important. You know what we ought to do? It ought to be important in our lives so much so that it takes priority in our scheduling. Amen. Amen. Man, y'all just got me off to topic here. All right, we'll, just, we'll end with a laugh. How about that?